Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. For those of you happening across our broadcast, podcast, webcast, uh, we're, we're casting all over the place here. Uh, we want to let you know that it's our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and you can get in on the ground floor uh, by joining us and uh, asking uh, questions relating to the Bible and how the Bible relates to the entire spectrum of life. Maybe it's a passage or two in the Scripture you'd like to explore a little bit more up close and personally. Maybe you're coming off weekend worship services, and uh, your pastor got into a, an area of the Scripture that you'd like to explore a little bit more in depth. We welcome those questions here on the broadcast. Uh, maybe you've been asked a tough question by a skeptic or a non-believer felt you were a little short on being able to uh, give an effective uh, reason for the hope that's within you. Well, we are here every day to equip you to be able to do just that. Uh, if you'd like uh, perspective on the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, all over it as well. Wherever we go on the broadcast, entirely up to you. It's your questions on the Bible that uh, drive and direct our uh, journey through God's Word. Well, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richard. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you'd like to join us face-to-face, -face, our first and most reliable form of streaming will be on our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. There you can join us again face-to-face -face from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. If you go to the website, which is again C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com, click on the Watch Live tab and you'll be sent to the page where you can engage with us or watch previous broadcasts. On the right-hand side of the screen, you'll be able to engage in chat or you can send us messages after the fact through our email address, which is listed at the bottom of the screen, questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're listening on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, that is how you can get in touch with us. Again, it is questions, the questions are plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com, and you can make use of that so long as it is for the intended purpose that is receiving sincere Bible questions. Our Facebook page is uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is a reason for hope, but noting that we have had and continue to have interesting interactions with their censorship teams. We want to make sure that you are still able to engage with us when or if we are taken down. And of course, that will be mainly through our website. We encourage you to make it a habit of joining us there. The advantage of the social media sites is that you'll be notified whenever we are going live. And note, they have the same chat function as the website. But if things get muted, things get rebooted or mysteriously vanish off of our page and channel. Note, we don't play those games, but they do. So make sure that you're aware of that. And also note, the standards for the questions we'll be receiving are limited to sincere Bible questions. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. Questions means that it's asked in the form of such. And if you want to have your question answered, make sure the substance of the answer involves the Bible. Not that it references the Bible and the question, but ultimately brings us beyond it. We want to equip you for your walk with God, and we believe that is first and foremost done through His Word. Make sure that that's your priority. And also note, if you have questions of the 
polemical sort. And for those of you who speak English, meaning other religions that would raise themselves against the faith, we, of course, are equipped, I guess, just as much as any Bible teachers ought to be on those issues as well. So we'll happily recommend you send those to us whenever you have them. If you're talking with Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, or the like, we will be happy to clarify perhaps uh, some sneaky business taking place under the table. But note, we also are going to be taking time today to discuss biblical prophecy. We want to give due time for that, but there's always time to make sure God is involved in the process. Why don't we start there and then go on to our, uh, I guess, uh, aforementioned scheduled broadcast. Yeah, uh, why don't you open us up in a word of prayer? It'd be an honor. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people, and we ask that we would also all be in your spirit, whether it's to be given ears to hear or a heart ready to receive and share yours. We ask that you would be glorified as a result of all of this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so what's going on in the prophecy world? Obviously, last Friday we had a uh, interesting run-in with the uh, world of Islam, and we clarified those issues, but our eyes are going to and fro throughout the world concerning the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what should we be aware of right now? Well, uh, there are a few nations that the Bible mentions as being uh, specifically involved in last day's events. Uh, For instance, in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, there is the description of the now-famous Gog and Magog invasion, a Russian-led coalition of nations that includes specifically Persia, modern Iran, as one of the key members of this invading party. Well, uh, a few years ago, uh, prophecy buffs would look at this and they'd say, well, I just don't see how this could possibly happen in that uh, Iran and uh, Israel are fast friends. Well, then the Shah of Iran fell. Uh, The Islamic Republic of Iran was founded by the Ayatollah Rula Khomeini. And uh, from that point onward, uh, one of the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran's main goals has been the wiping out of what they call the Zionist entity, a.k.a. Israel. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, at that time, Russia and Iran had no uh, relations whatsoever. They uh, abut uh, uh, territories, at least the former uh, Soviet Union did. And so they had a very tense relations as a result of all of that. Well, lo and behold, all that turned around, and now uh, Russia and Iran are fast friends. And it does seem that a lot of the pieces of the puzzle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, at least as far as the nations that are going to compose this invading army, are really beginning to come together. Very interesting article uh, in the uh, Jerusalem Post uh, about uh, the Iranians now getting involved with the Russians, supplying the Russians uh, drone technology that they can use in their current uh, war going on in the Ukraine. But uh, one of the more interesting uh, developments that we have seen as far as uh, the uh, rise of Iran and uh, the rise of Iran as a power to be reckoned with in the world uh, certainly uh, revolved around some of the details that happened as a result of the assassination attempt on uh, uh, Salman, Salman Rushdie, Rushdie the uh, the uh, for I was going to say the uh, Muslim writer but he is uh, an individual who left Islam he's a professing atheist at this point but he wrote a uh, very controversial book called the Satanic Verses it was uh, sort of a fantasy oriented book where a few of their characters were involved with a terrorist uh, attack on an airplane while they were falling seemingly to their deaths. They were transformed into a couple of characters, one uh, called
called Jibreel, after the uh, angel Gabriel, the other Maud, uh, which was a uh, kind of a pejorative way of referring to Muhammad. Uh, the uh, Crusaders used to refer to Muhammad and his followers as Mahud or Mahudians, and uh, it kind of uh, is still a, a point of contention between the two. Well, it does seem that uh, Salman Rushdie was trying to be sort of an agent provocateur as far as the Iranians were concerned, and he succeeded. The Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa saying that uh, the uh, author of this book that he considered blasphemous to Islam uh, was to uh, be killed and there would be a bounty placed uh, upon uh, his head and that anyone who succeeded in killing this infidel uh, would be richly rewarded. And so uh, this fatwa has been in place for quite some time. Uh, it it uh, seems like uh, something that was almost ignored until obviously last week when Salman Rushdie, speaking in Chikatwa, New York, uh, had an individual run up on stage and stab him in the neck and several other places. Uh, Salman Rushdie continues to be in critical condition, uh, but uh, does seem to be uh, in a place where he's going to survive this particular attack. Well, the motivation, uh, although it was initially stated in the press, the motivation for the attack was unclear, a look at the individual, and we don't name the individual because we don't want to give uh, that sort of person credit for doing something so horrific. Uh, the individual, uh, look at his uh, social media connections, indicates a fascination with uh, the Iranian Republican Guard Corps and uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, fatwa. Uh, as far as uh, the Iranian government saying, well, we're not really uh, backing all of this, they did seem to back off from it for a while, but then things have reversed. A uh, famous quote that came out of Iran from the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, referred to the fatwa, that is the contract, the hit put out on Salman Rushdie as being eternal in its value until such time as uh, Salman Rushdie dies, he referred to it as a bullet that has been shot that uh, will continue to move towards its target until it in achieves its intended uh, aim. A number of pro-Iranian uh, government newspapers uh, talked about how the individual who committed this uh, atrocious act is deserving of, as one put it, a thousand kisses for honoring this fatwa. Uh, and uh, the Iranian government uh, showed their two thumbs up for this sort of thing by increasing the bounty that would come about for someone who would bump off Salman Rushdie from $2.5 million to about $3.5 million. So uh, we followed this uh, particular event. And, and the reason it becomes prophetically significant was uh, there was a very interesting uh, statement that was issued, uh, a belated statement, I should say, by uh, our government, uh, by uh, Joe Biden, decrying uh, the idea of uh, someone attacking Salman Rushdie. Uh, according to the statement issued by our government, uh, allegedly Joe Biden wrote this. It might have been one of his um, underlings, but this is what it said. Jill and I were shocked and saddened to learn of this vicious attack on Salman Rushdie yesterday in New York. Uh, we, together with all American people around the world, are praying for his health and recovery. I am glad for the first responders and brave individuals who jumped into action to render aid to Rushdie and subdue the attacker. Salman Rushdie, with his insight into humanity and his unmatched sense of story, with his refusal to be intimidated or silenced, stands for essential universal ideals, truth, 
courage, resilience, the ability to share ideas without fear. These are the building blocks of any free and open society. And today we reaffirm our commitment to those deeply American values in solidarity with Rushdie and all who would stand for freedom of expression, period. Well, the interesting thing about all of this is that there was no mention of the fatwa or of the bounty placed on uh, Salman Rushdie's head by the Iranian regime. And uh, a uh, overlook of this sort of thing uh, is uh, something that communicates something internationally. It communicates to the Iranian government that the United States isn't going to dare uh, mess up what they uh, are hoping to achieve with a so-called Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, the Iranians being in a position of strength in this negotiation are essentially going to continue to go about their uh, business of becoming a nuclear power by uh, continuing to develop uh, their weapons and uh, enriching uh, uranium uh, now to 60 percent and approaching 90 percent, at which point they can make as many nuclear weapons as they choose. Uh, and uh, all they are doing in terms of negotiation with the Europeans uh, or uh, about what has been known as uh, the Joint uh, Committed Plan of Action uh, on uh, restricting Iran becoming a nuclear power is seeing how many uh, concessions they can get from the United States and Europe as far as lifting economic sanctions are concerned. So uh, a, uh, fail, a failure to uh, address the fatwa, to address the uh, fanatical nature of the Iranian regime, uh, I think uh, the lack of any statements along this line is uh, very uh, loud by its silence. Uh, prophetically, I think we are going to continue to see Iran move in the direction of becoming a nuclear power. It's going to continue to move in the direction of uh, solidifying its uh, relationship with Russia. And um, as we have said on the program, we don't believe that this uh, Russian-led invasion of Israel is going to happen until such time, according to Ezekiel 38, as Israel is seen by its enemies as having its defenses down, uh, being a land of unwalled villages. We've also seen very interestingly, uh, and this is another uh, story that we want you to keep an eye on, and we'll detail it as uh, September 1st uh, draws near, but that uh, Israel is going to be invaded in the last days, according to Ezekiel 38, by those seeking to take spoil. That is, that Israel will have something very valuable that uh, this uh, Russian-led coalition is going to want to lay its hands upon. Well, prior to about two years ago, uh, prophecy followers kind of scratched their heads about that. Uh, Israel is like the fourth leading fruit producer to the world, does a lot of agricultural things, some high-tech things. But uh, no uh, oil or minerals to speak of aside from the uh, minerals that are found in the Dead Sea, but not really anything that would uh, kick off a massive invasion until such time as a couple of years ago when large tracts of natural gas were discovered right off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. Two of these tracks, one named Tamar and uh, the other, uh, I forget the name of the Le other Leviathan. Leviathan. Uh, two biblical names for these tracks have been associated, and another track has been discovered uh, kind of paralleling their, their border with Lebanon. This is where things get dicey. 
Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon has communicated that if Israel, which has already placed platforms to be able to extract natural gas from the farthest north platform, if it goes online as it is scheduled to do on September 1st, Hezbollah has said that they will attack this platform uh, with uh, missiles and drones. Uh, well, Israel will not put up with that for a single moment, and I think what we have on the horizon is another one of those birth pains, especially surrounding Israel, that's on the horizon. So keep an eye on these things. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There was an attack in Jerusalem over the weekend that uh, injured five American citizens along with a number of Israelis. Uh, fortunately, uh, although uh, many were hospitalized, uh, none so far have died as a result of this attack. But uh, once again, we see that Israel in the Middle East is definitely heating up again. And you being one of the individuals who have been injured in attacks in times past, you can give full marks to the Israeli hospital system. Yes, uh, the IDF was, uh, was very much on target. Uh, you know, I have a uh, shirt that was given to me by a friend saying I got stoned in Jerusalem. I was actually hit in the head uh, by a chunk of concrete that was uh, thrown uh, by a uh, Palestinian. And uh, I was uh, very well tended to, and uh, no uh, harm was done in any kind of long-term uh, kind of effect as a result of catching one, taking one for the team. And, you know, I, I was kind of excited about it, and the people with me were sort of jealous because I was the only one that actually got to shed their blood in Jerusalem. So <laughs> Yeah, I was covered by my backpack, and Dan Swanson was able to take cover under the stairs. We were the closest to the event, but it was quite a sight. All the husbands instinctively covered their wives. We definitely have a good troop with yep. us. But uh, going out to your questions, this starts off with one of the individuals who was there with us, Mike. Uh, he wants to know if there are atheists spoken spoken of in the Bible, uh, not by Atheism name. Atheism is spoken yeah. in the Bible. Atheists, uh, individuals would hold that worldview, technically not, technically yes, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, as far as the ideology of the denial of there not being a God, obviously Psalm 14 begins... Well, two places, yeah. Yeah, uh, Psalm 14 begins with the statement, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This would be the mindset, the claim of atheos, or atheism. Uh, and likewise, in Romans chapter 1, it notes the consequences of a mindset that although they knew God, God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but changed the image of God into that of corruptible man. So the idea of exchanging... Humanism, if yeah, you will. Exchanging yeah. the idea of God for an idol, and if idols are going to include yourself, that would be a denial or a claim that atheism supports. Uh, but believe it or not, actually, one of the early nicknames for Christians and followers of Jesus were atheists, right. because they did not acknowledge any of the gods of the nations. If you were in the ancient world, then your belief in God was about as malleable as, you know, our uh, choice of car or clothing. It was just something that you did depending on where you were. And for these individuals, Jews would, for the most part, not vocalize these things, but they said, you know, we're going along to get along in right. Rome, unless you bring your icons in here, then there's going to be trouble. But when Christians would literally permeate the entire Roman Empire, you would spot one by asking, oh, do you uh, affirm Caesar as Lord? And they would say, no. Well, what about Jupiter? What about Hermes? What about Saturn and the others? And they would say, no. And say, what are you, an atheist? And say, well, I believe in Jesus. And they'd say, who's Jesus? He's not a god, he's a man. And so they would think 
that they were believers in no gods. But again, the mindset of atheism, as far as it manifests itself today, did not have the kind of environment that would tolerate that sort of worldview until around the 1800s. And the reason for that is the same reason that certain pagan ideologies were popular at certain times, whereas they aren't today. Or, of course, certain cults were more popular at certain times than they were today. We look at the 3rd and 4th century, we ask, why did Jehovah's Witnesses have their field day in denying the deity of Christ? That's because Constantine and the others had political expediency and sympathy for the Arians. It was appealing to a lot of people to be on the side of the emperor and his sensibilities. We look at the cults that were permeating throughout the Persian and the Assyrian empires. The reason why it was more popular at those times was because, not just the iron hands of these empires, but the appeal of the fact these gods were doing land office business. I'm talking to a pagan right now who shares this sensibility today, that if your god is able to demonstrate more strength, then he's more worthy of worship. It's a reflection of his people. And if his people are successful, well, then you want to believe in that god. It's the same mindset adopted by Islam as well. Also note, when we get to the 1800s and the popularization of a lot of anti-theistic sentiments, be that Friedrich Nietzsche and Karl Marx, and the others. All these individuals were living at a time where people had basically seen God in all of his glory, or gory in this case, not just regarding the Protestant Reformation and the persecutions of the Jesuits, but even more so, everyone else who seemed to believe in God was on the Muslim side of things and were just as prone to be brutal. Right Now, we look at that and we see culture reacting and saying, well, if this is the option to believe in the Turks God, that was the reference to Muslims at this time, or the Catholics God, I choose neither. And so the popular views of people who were given a lot of political influence were, of course, able to popularize their views. And, of course, like we see with individuals like Charwin's Bulldog and others, uh, Richard or Charles Darwin, rather, almost said Richard Dawkins, but close, uh, he Aldous himself... Aldous Huxley and others, yeah. Yeah, uh, he himself was an avowed Christian, a cultic Christian at that, but in his false teachings, he avowed a system that made more room for atheism, not because of the evidence or his study of history, but because of his pursuit of pleasure. And again, hedonism, or the belief that pleasure is the highest good, is nothing new in history. It's just a matter of which culture, which group, which thinking or philosophy is going to appeal to that the most. Now, obviously, the Bible takes the issue at its root, not just in the Psalms, but also in Romans, where we note that nature has a origin, or an origin, rather. I'll get my grammar correct, because the substance of their arguments are just that vain. When we look at creation, and obviously we see the intelligent design demonstrated there, you can go to resources like Answers in Genesis, where literally hundreds of very qualified and very well-off to do, as far as their credentials, scientists are examining everything in their fields and saying, not just because of my religious worldview, but in affirmation of it, I can look at the data and conclude this does in fact show all the telltale signs of a designer. 
And that's all that Paul really needs to essentially lay out in his letter to the Romans and saying these things are self-evident, that the attributes of God, though invisible, are clearly seen in his creation. So when we look at individuals that espouse atheism, it would be like people in the 4th century looking at Arians or people in the 6th century BC looking at Persians. It was what is popular at the time. It's what appeals to the most people. It's the venue for the most pleasure. It is the path of least resistance. The same is true for those areas dominated by Sharia. People who convert to Islam aren't wowed by the eloquence of the Quran. They just don't want to be put under the jizya or beheaded every Friday as entertainment. That's the point. Right. So either path of least resistance, appeal to the most pleasure, or a social aversion and reaction towards those who have misrepresented God. Right. And that's the whole reason why, not just in a macro historically, but on an individual basis, personally, we ask why would someone be an atheist? And we run through the same criteria. Is it because someone in your life as a Christian has done you wrong and you don't want anything to do with what's associated with them? Right. Is there something in atheism that appeals to your baser desires? You don't want there to be a God because he stands in the way of your fun? Like Aldous Huxley. Yeah. And on it goes. Yeah. But the point being made is intellectualism is not going to conclude that. And we have plenty of evidence to back up those claims. If you'd like further clarification or if atheists are listening and want to challenge it, then be please do so politely, but be welcome to in the comments. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple things I'd say about that, Mike. You know, we don't see, say, a uh, an individual who's an atheist uh, described uh, as uh, an enemy of God's people. Um, there were obviously individuals that we could probably associate with a completely materialistic or cynical worldview, uh, like Pontius Pilate, for instance, or uh, Herod the Great, uh, although Herod the Great was a great builder of temples, but largely for pragmatic reasons. Uh, you could see how uh, the Romans would probably give lip service to this idea of there being gods out there, but when uh, Pontius Pilate, for instance, made his famous quote, uh, qui veritas, what is truth, when he met Jesus, uh, you could see that uh, he was probably a pretty cynical guy, although he was very troubled by the fact that his wife sent him a message having saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I suffered greatly in a dream last night because of him, and it kind of got Pilate scared. So whether Pilate was superstitious, whether he was completely cynical, we really don't know. Closest we get uh, to a, a, an interaction with an atheist was an interaction with atheists uh, that Paul had in Athens in Acts chapter 17. We are told that he went to the uh, Agora, the marketplace, and there debated with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, Stoic philosophers, um, you know, Stoicism has sort of mutated over time and has sort of become a, uh, a bastion for atheism. Marcus Aurelius, uh, the if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, he kind of gets a sort of a cosmetic makeover as being a very uh, wise and sage kind of an individual or worthy of, of the admiration of a guy like, uh, say, uh, Maximus. Maximus. But uh, he was an individual that uh, pretty much took stoic ideas and tried to remove the idea of the worship of the gods uh, from all of this. Uh, and, and it sort of launched into, in the uh, 17th, 18th centuries, people getting a hold of Stoic ideas and, and melding them together with modern atheism. But as far as someone that Paul or someone biblical would deal with, the Epicureans would probably have been 
uh, the ones that would be most adverse to the idea of there being a God. You see, the goal of Epicurus's teaching, the fellow who founded Epicureanism, uh, you know, we think of Epicureans, we t- tend to think of party animals and people living to stimulate their senses. But what Epicurus really wanted to teach was for people just to relax and to enjoy their life without worrying so much. And so one of the things that Epicurus saw that caused people to worry uh, quite a bit was the idea that somehow, some way, they had uh, stepped on the toes of some god out there, and uh, they really needed to appease these gods. Uh, my wife Pam and I watched uh, Ron Howard's uh, rendition of uh, the rescue of the uh, 13 uh, young uh, Thai soccer players uh, who got trapped uh, in uh, the back recesses of a cave that got flooded in Thailand a few years ago. Great, great uh, rendition of all of that. And um, Vigo Mortensen is one of the actors who uh, was, uh, was in there and really did a tremendous job showing exactly what they went through. But one of the interesting things was uh, you saw how the people in Thailand, uh, first of all, would be praying to an image of the reclining princess. The reclining princess uh, was uh, a deity that was associated with the mountain that this cave uh, was located in. And you could see how the people running around were uh, were upset and they were thinking, oh, the reason that these children got trapped is because they have offended the gods or some deity. And so they were trying to offer to whom it may concern uh, offerings to appease these various gods. Well, Epicurus saw this and said, uh, you know, uh, this is not getting us anywhere. And so he tried to remove this consciousness of the gods from his followers. If uh, the gods did exist, according to Epicurus, they live so far away from the affairs of man in a permanent state of uh, separation from them, they didn't interfere with humanity. In fact, they probably weren't even aware of humanity. So although uh, if you really push came to shove with a guy like Epicurus and said, you know, are you an atheist? He would probably say, well, I'm an agnostic. I just don't even know if we can really even know there's gods out there or if they have any interaction with us. But because we can't, let's just live as if they didn't exist. So that's probably as close as we see uh, individuals being named who would be what we would call atheists, more like uh, agnostics in our day, you know, you, you push an atheist or someone that claims to be an atheist and ask them some leading questions, and uh, you say, well, okay, uh, you uh, declare there is no God. How can you know that for sure? Do you have all knowledge of all things in the universe? Well, most of them honestly would say, well, no, I don't. Uh, well, how do you know if you don't know everything in the universe? There isn't a God out there someplace. Well, they'd say, well, I don't know that. So what you've really determined at that point is that they're not atheists, they're really agnostics. If they're really honest, they would say, I don't know if there's a God, but honestly they would say, I don't see the evidence to support the idea that there is a God, although I can't be sure. So that's pretty much what you were dealing with the Epicurean philosophers that uh, Paul met uh, when he was there at Athens. 
And if you want to see his influence on modern atheism, look up Anthony Flew's dilemma. He took that straight from Epicurus, but he forgot the pretext. The kind of God that he disproved in his dilemma was the kind of God that only exists to make you feel good all the time. Right. We don't believe in that God either. So, right. So with that being said. So there you go. I hope that helps, Mike, but it's a great question. A question from Isaiah. I think we can break this up into three pieces. I'll take the two easy parts. The first is when John and Daniel and other prophets saw visions, did God show them the future? In some cases, Isaiah, yes. For example, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 26, uh, not very vague. The visions in the evenings and the mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Next yep. part. There you go. The technology of the end times, when they saw the ten-headed beast, did God show them the Antichrist, or did they only see a ten-headed beast symbolic, since Scripture says, don't worry about tomorrow? So two things there. What's the significance of being showed a ten-headed monster? And, of course, is that in any way relevant to Jesus' statement at the end of Matthew chapter 6? Now, this is something we emphasize in the broadcast very regularly. Do not just take half of a sentence piecemeal and apply it to a place where it's not appropriate right. when the immediate context tells you what that sentence was meant to communicate. Yeah. When Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, the whole sentence is, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is followed by several verses where he talks about the things we worry about, not concerning matters of prophecy or the nature of the Antichrist, but for food, clothing, and um, water, and so forth. What shall we eat? What shall we wear? What, what shall we drink? What we put on. Yeah, yeah and clothing. that's the point. So our security in a material sense, the conversation is, God knows you have need of these things, therefore don't worry about tomorrow. This has nothing, count them, no things to do with biblical prophecy. Zero. So if that's clear then, <laughs> let's take a step back and also ask concerning the nature of prophecy. Obviously there are other instances, Ezekiel 1's a perfect example, of God showing Ezekiel things referring to the present, that God was still with Israel despite them not being in Israel. Right. Or we can go to Exodus chapter 20 where Moses was shown things of the past. Where did he get the information about Genesis through Exodus and the times before he was cognizant and able to take notes that was given to him by God through prophecy, because prophet doesn't mean predicting the future, it just means speaking on behalf of God. Right. God can tell you about the past, present, or future anytime he wants. But that's when we're given sections of symbolism. There's this uh, either-or presentation, and Isaiah, I'm pretty sure he didn't men mean it to be this way, but the either-or mindset of, are they being shown the Antichrist when they saw the beast with seven heads and ten horns, and on his crowns a blasphemous name, and he was like a leopard and a bear and a lion and so forth? Yeah. If that's symbolic, does that mean that's not the Antichrist, or is there a way to answer the question with, yes, that's the Antichrist and it's symbolic? Well, I think it's a both-and, isn't it? Um, it is a reference not just to the Antichrist, but it is also a reference to the last day's world-dominating empire that the Antichrist is going to be synonymous with. And where else would we see that sort of mindset in Scripture? When we see a symbol, how do we know what that symbol means? And if especially in Revelation, it seems to treat those pictures, him being like a leopard and a lion and a bear in appearance, him having seven heads and ten horns and all these crowns and so forth, 
would there be a reason, since it doesn't go on to explain any of that in the chapter, for us to have read, say, the 65 books that came before it? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we've uh, really tried to communicate, especially in our Wednesday night, uh, There's a New World Coming study through the book of Revelation, is this. And, and I hope if, uh, you know, you all who followed along on this study uh, don't get anything else out of the study, it's this. It's that uh, in order to understand the book of Revelation, you got to understand the rest of the Bible. You know, I was, uh, uh, it was very interesting uh, interaction I had on our Twitter uh, profile. Uh, it was about the, the whole idea of uh, how many people, for instance, uh, have uh, said they've been Christians for a long, long time, but they've never heard a sermon on, uh, say, the Bema seat of Christ, the, the judgment of rewards that is described in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and, uh, you know, how it's almost left out. And, you know, my two cents worth was, well, that's why it's so valuable to teach the entire Bible chapter by chapter, book by book, and verse by verse. That way you get the whole counsel of God, and you don't have things left out that maybe people don't like or they're not comfortable with or they'd rather talk about something else. Uh, you know, the, the thing that I, I shared uh, in this uh, particular thread was it's amazing to me how many times people will come to our church and they're new people and they will say things to me like, do you teach like that every Sunday? And, you know, I'm sort of wondering if there's going to be a critique about my teaching following. But I said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you just went through a passage of Scripture. Do you do that every Sunday? And, you know, from my neck of the church woods in Calvary Chapel, by the way, shout out to Joseph Gross, another Calvary pastor from Silver City who's joining us today. Uh, but Joseph would, would share the same thing. We teach the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, chapter by chapter, book by book, and verse by verse. And people look at me and they go, I've never been in a church that does that. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you know, I, I need to get out more because, uh, you know, prior to getting involved with Calvary Chapel, uh, I was involved with a great Bible teaching church here in Tucson, Christ Community Church. Uh, prior to that, uh, I was involved with a satellite church from John MacArthur's ministry, and John MacArthur's a big believer in teaching the, the whole Bible expositionally. And, and I just sort of assumed that that's what everybody did, but it's not. And so in order to understand, for instance, the book of Revelation, maybe this is why so many people get so nervous uh, about teaching the book of Revelation or even studying the book of Revelation is this. What do we tell people about understanding the 66th book of the Bible? Make sure, A, that you've read them in order. There's a reason they're presented as such. Second, always make sure you ask the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how, the basic rules of journalism. If something is mentioned, that you make sure you ask what is the context of the statement, not only to read it in its entirety, but to understand maybe right. with some help. And the Bible is pretty good about doing this on its own if you just give it a chance, but letting it flow through uh, as the people who had uh, written it would have understood it. And then finally, not just is context is important, not just is the idea of reading the whole scripture important, but also noting this principle that if something hasn't been explained, that means it already has. And if it hasn't been explained, then it's about to be. Yeah. And, and, is, yeah. and, and isn't that uh, one of the cool things we've discovered in the book of Revelation? How many times people say, oh, you know, things are, are so symbolic. You know, like, like uh, Jesus is seen walking among the lampstands and holding seven stars in his hand. Who in the world can understand 
what's going on there. Well, actually, really anybody can understand because uh, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, for instance, uh, we are told the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, Jesus speaking here, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the, the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So, bingo. You don't have to guess. You don't have to say, well, this is what this means to me. Now, what we want to find out is what it means to Jesus, right? Because right. he's the embodiment of the word. And so here we see a great example of that. And, you know, when we study Revelation, we see constantly, you know, when something symbolic is presented, it's either explained right afterwards, it's been explained before if it's not, or it's been explained in the previous 65 books of the Bible. And so maybe that's why people are so nervous about teaching the book of Revelation, because if you hopscotch through the Bible and teach topically and try to figure out, okay, well, this is, we're going to want to scratch people where they itch instead of giving the whole counsel of God's word. And that's what the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, if we teach the entire Bible in context, well, then we're not going to have to worry about whether our people are missing out on some truth in the word of God. We're not going to have to worry about standing before the Lord someday and him going, why didn't you teach my people on this subject? It was incredibly important to them. You know, why do we teach verse by verse? Mainly because we're chickens. We don't want to stand before the Lord someday and say, well, you know, Lord, I looked at your word and I just decided this wasn't really an important thing to go through. I, I don't want to have that experience someday. And so if we teach through the entire Word of God, we're going to understand what prophecy is all about. We're going to see how it's been fulfilled. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, well, what Old Testament prophecies, for instance, uh, were fulfilled in the life uh, of Jesus? How do we figure out which ones are actually biblical prophecies or maybe someone reading into that? How do you do that? Well, you start where the New Testament begins in the gospel account that takes careful detail and time and very precious scroll space, by the way, to point out this happened so that it might be fulfilled, yeah. which was written by Isaiah the prophet. Yeah. This was fulfilled so that it may be real that was written, and gone, so on and so forth. Now, obviously, not every prophecy is spelled out for us. Modern scholars say about 103 of the 300 prophecies of the Jewish Messiah were fulfilled in his first coming, and before the Orthodox Jews step in and say, but he failed 200, uh, saying to be continued leaves room for those 200 to be fulfilled. None were violated. None were uh, right. basically canceled. Right. So note that, but firstly, and most importantly, just read. It's very good about laying these out. Yeah. So, you know, I guess the, the, the important thing for us to understand in all of this is that when it comes to prophecy, the best way to understand it is to understand why we have prophecy in the first place. Why did God include prophecy in the Scripture? Well, to testify of himself. You search the scriptures because in them you think they have life, but these are they which testify of me. And even if we read passages like Revelation 13 concerning the Antichrist, those characteristics that were described in that way, the leopard, the bear, the um, lion, and so forth, were all callbacks word for word to Daniel where it was describing the transition of world empires to the kingdom of the Messiah. And someone who had read Daniel before they read Revelation, because chronologically 
basically. That just makes sense. That would be on your radar. If I got to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24, where it notes the ten horns that were on one of these beasts are ten kings. Oh, right. that's uh, probably going to be important later if this explanation's not amended in any way, like, for instance, in Revelation 18, or 17, rather, where it goes on to clarify the heads are kings, of which three will be disposed, which is, again, a reference back to Daniel. Right. All these things are in reference to or foreshadowings of the Messiah's purpose for this world, allowing yeah. mankind, in this case, to see itself for how ugly it is, so that when he finally takes over, it's all dealt with at once. Yeah. But the point being made is just that. Jesus is only allowing these things to be revealed to us, not so that we have bragging rights at the bar on Saturday, but so that when these things are predicted, you don't miss it because they're concerning him and concerning you, the whole purpose of Scripture. And, you know, the, the other thing that I would just add about prophecy is it makes the Bible an absolutely unique book, because there are uh, isms and cults that have tried to make prophecies down through time, but boy, their track record is uh, incredibly spotty, if not ludicrous. Uh, Mormons will claim that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God because he predicted the rise of the Civil War way back in the 1830s that it would start in South Carolina. But what they don't point out is that in uh, Doctrines and Covenants, Joseph Smith goes on to predict that all nations of the world, including Great Britain, would get involved with the Civil War. Which he mentions by name. And uh, that the Indians would end up winning it. So when I've asked Mormon missionaries about that, uh, their stock answer is, well, the Civil War is not over yet, to which another Mormon missionary was less experienced. We don't believe that, do we? So, you know, it's one thing to say that you can predict the future. It's another thing to prove it. But when we see the unbroken track record of the Bible uh, and, and the, the intense, amazing proof that the Bible is, in fact, foretelling future events, you know, for instance, uh, we have copies of the book of Daniel that predate the events that were predicted in the book of Daniel. Uh, and, and there's a reason for that. In Isaiah chapter 42, and verse 8, we read, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So, uh, you know, really, the, the Bible throws down the gauntlet. It says that we are in touch with God who lives above and beyond time, who sees the end from the beginning, and reveals these things to us as we go through time so that we can know for sure that he, in fact, has spoken to us. So very important for us to have that under our belt. Let us know if that helps, Isaiah. Got a few questions from Mac. What would be the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Isn't that the question? Uh, place I usually go is, of course, the most simple. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Paul lays this out. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, and which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is, in these first two verses, before we get into the real meat of this passage, the 
thing that separates the Corinthians of the church of Corinth from the rest of Corinth, which would separate us from anyone who is not us. It is the belief in these three facts. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ, the Jewish Messiah, that's the Greek word Christos, Hebrew, and it would be Mashiach, died for our sins. So not just a historical event, the death of a figure, but for a purpose, what separated us from God. According to the scriptures, an affirmation of those records as a reliable description of those reasons. That he was buried, so also affirming that physical death being verified, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Then verses 4, or that's also 4, but verses 5 through 11 go on to note basically the eyewitnesses numbering at least 500 at one time of that historical reality. It's as history as historic can get. But the point being made is just that, Mac. What would separate a Christian from a non-Christian isn't where they spend their Sunday mornings or Saturday evenings or Wednesday nights or Thursday afternoons or whatever day you attend a church. Going to a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than, as the saying goes, being a garage makes you a Chevy. Also, Living no, in a garage makes yeah. you a Chevy. Yep. And noting that point as well, when we're talking about the essence of the Christian faith, it is that affirmation. What would separate us from a Muslim? You both believe in God, you both pray, you both give, you both claim to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you both even believe that Jesus was virgin-born and the Messiah. Uh, Yeah, what does Messiah mean? Why was Jesus virgin-born? who is God and what is his ultimate relationship right. and purpose for right. us. Those are fundamental differences, because Surah 4.157 uh, objectively denies Jesus was ever crucified. That sets us apart from a non-Christian and would identify a Muslim as a non-Christian. Why? Because they deny our core beliefs. That's the affirmation, and that is the personal belief of everyone who is Christian. Anyone who is not Christian denies one or all of these things. Yeah, uh, I, I guess uh, I, I think that's a great answer. And, you know, I'd like to personalize a little bit because maybe that's what you're getting at. What is the difference between somebody who's actually a Christian and a non-Christian? Uh, yeah, I was asked uh, a few years ago to speak in a comparative religions class. Uh, they were bringing in representatives of uh, all kinds of different uh, isms and faiths and so on. And one person in the class who was an evangelical Christian asked the professor if an evangelical Christian could come and speak to the class. So I came in, and, and what I did was I just said, look, you know, I just want to make this as simple as possible. Uh, this is what an evangelical Christian believes. First John chapter 5 And verse 11 says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And as I said, so there's three things you got to understand about uh, being a Christian. First of all, the Christian life is historical. It, this is the testimony. In other words, it purports to tell us what God, in fact, has done for us in history, as 1 Corinthians 15 illustrates. Secondly, we are told that God has given us eternal life. In other words, it's a personal relationship with God. God wants to take us from where we are, separated from him, going into an eternity that's separated from him, and give us the gift of eternal life. But it's also volitional. It requires a decision on our part not just historical, it's not just spiritual, it's volitional. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so I said, everybody 
who comes in contact with God's truth uh, isn't saved just because they agree with it. They have to make a personal volitional decision to enter in by faith into a relationship with Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, we are told, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and live with him and he with me. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is someone can believe, first of all, that Christianity is historically valid, but it doesn't mean they're saved. They can secondly believe that Christianity and Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for sins and allows them, anyone who believes in that, to enter into eternal life. But it is only when we volitionally put our faith and trust in Jesus that we become Christians. You know, I, I guess what it kind of comes down to uh, is this. What's the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian? Well, in Revelation chapter 22, we are told, whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life freely and without cost. In other words, you can enter into life if you will. Uh, a Christian is someone who, by an act of their will, puts their faith and trust in what Jesus has done for them. They believe his promise, they invite him into their heart, ask him to forgive their sins, make them a brand new person. Uh, a non-Christian is whosoever won't. If you look at that and you go, no, I don't believe that, no, I don't like that, no, I've still got some sinning to do, uh, you're not. And that's probably the pretty much the easiest way to to draw a line between believer and non-believer. Remember something, though. It's not just uh, understanding facts about Jesus. We're told in the book of James that uh, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons believe that and tremble. In other words, demons know there's one God, but it's not doing them any good. Why? Because volitionally, they rejected a relationship with God. So if you're out there and you've uh, been listening to this program, and maybe you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, Maybe you believe that he rose from the dead in a moment of history, but you haven't made that decision to receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. Uh, Sean and I would exhort you and, and encourage you, please make that decision. You can do so through prayer. The Bible says whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you express your heart to God through prayer, you simply say, Lord, I believe you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead, and I believe your promise that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Please come into my heart, forgive my sins, make me a brand new person. You pray that prayer in faith. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So don't wait another day. Pray and invite Jesus into your heart. All right. Um Here's a question we've received anonymously, and it's a good one. Uh, so I definitely want to make sure this individual gets their answer before we sign off. What about the claims that the prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament were backfilled to give validity to the Gospels? Backfilled meaning filled in advance to just kind of, you know, uh, associate it with something that was accepted by the Jews they were trying to appeal to. Yeah, there's a whole book written on that subject called The Passover Plot. Yeah that uh, indicated that uh, Jesus purposely tried to fulfill Old Testament prophecies in order to uh, present his claims to be Messiah. But like it all got out of hand. the location of his birth yeah. and the circumstances of his mother's—anyway, uh, you get the idea. There are just some prophecies that he can't control, but I don't even have to go that route. Uh, to the individual who asked the question, two things that need to be considered to effectively respond. Whether they effectively respond is another issue. But to note a proper explanation of this, it 
depends if you're speaking to a Jewish person, someone who is sympathetic to the Old Testament, or someone who's not. For someone who is, my go-to is the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and making sure that they can at least agree that a prophecy can have dual fulfillments. Now, if they are, as a practicing Jew, sympathetic to the Old Testament, they would acknowledge that Nathan's, or not, yeah, uh, the prophet Nathan's uh, prophecy of the kingdom of David would have no end of days, that that was an immediate fulfillment in that David was being affirmed as the rightful successor to Saul's throne that was handed by Samuel, the last judge, yeah. but also had a second fulfillment, which every rabbi worth his salt, or whatever Jewish equivalent you want, would be able to affirm this is a dual prophecy that David would be the progenitor of the Messiah. Right. That is, of all the things that could be controversial, not one of them among Jewish circles. And if you can establish, okay, so dual prophecies are are possible, the question then is, does this fit? The ones where they have more credence are, of course, ones that don't fit the immediate context but are applied later, like Hosea, for instance, where it notes, out of Egypt I called my son. But others are far more direct in noting this was fulfilled so that it might be said, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Right. No one looks at Isaiah chapter 7 and notes, uh, prophecy or vision as high as heaven or as low as earth, uh, a girl's going to have a baby and the Assyrian Empire will fall before he uh, knows the difference between his right hand and his left. Not exactly earth-shaking. Interesting. But you have to hold them to that. That would be the Jewish response. Yeah. If they are not sympathetic to the Old Testament and say all oh, those were just filled in later, then what you have to do is go to the research and work of individuals, and we could name a few, but for the sake of time, who've done manuscript work in noting these prophecies have not only been able to fit these details, but not just looking back, looking forward. The more times they get prophecies from the past right, that can be spoken between the Christian and the Jew. But for someone who doesn't believe the Jewish scriptures have any validity, look at the prophecies Jesus made in the immediate, that the backfilling, even by atheist standards, include Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem in detail in Matthew 24. That's the one that we usually go to in our outreaches. So make sure to the individual you're talking to, you know what kind of person you're talking to, if they are Jewish or sympathetic to the Old Testament, look back, start in 2 Samuel, but you can pick one. Make sure you can allow for dual fulfillments and say, this is what we mean by that. And they could at least acknowledge, I don't agree, but I at least see your point. The Holy Spirit can do more with that than you give credit for, believe me. The people who aren't sympathetic go to the New Testament itself and say, well, if you don't believe the prophecies that were made in advance, what about the prophecies that were made in the immediate? If they were able to accurately predict things that wouldn't happen until decades after Jesus' death, what does that say about the things that were spoken centuries before Jesus' birth? That would yeah. be my answer. Yeah, and you know, another interesting thing that comes up as far as backfilling prophecy or the uh, Passover plot thing uh, it, it just doesn't really hold up because so many of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled were out of his control. It's a fascinating book called Science Speaks by Dr. Peter Stoner. Uh, you can go online to sciencespeaksdstoner.net and download it. Uh, it talks about just eight uh, major Messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. The odds of a person doing that are 1 in 10 to the 17th power against. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it, an impossibly high number. God bless you. Thanks for being with us on the broadcast. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. 
Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.